Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. At this time, we're happy to have our brother Steve Slusser, uh, live from Tampa, and looking forward to what the Lord's going to lay on uh, to share with us through brother Steve. All right, can you hear me okay? Got the thumbs up, all right. Yes. Mm. I have, a, I have a little fancy microphone. It shuts off my audio uh, when I use the mic. Uh, it's one like Andy got for you guys for your microphone. We're going to turn to the book of Nahum, according to uh, my wife, who is my bookkeeper. She puts in the margin of her Bibles dates and places where I speak and she has no notes at all in Nahum, no indication that I've ever spoken. And yet, uh, I can pull a uh, Nate Bramson, who's always showing pictures of his Bible. Uh, I have tons of notes because I taught it twice at CHBI. And uh, besides, you know, studies before that. So uh, I realized I'd never, ever preached from it. So, uh, so we're going to begin with Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. Um, verses 2 through 8 happen to be a psalm. Uh, it's not one of the psalms in our book of psalms, but it is indeed a psalm. The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can ignore, uh, endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. Verse 7. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. God bless the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, open your word to us this morning. Instruct us, teach us, encourage us. Uh, instill in us uh, a fear of of a holy and a mighty God, and a devotion to a loving and caring and protecting God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may have attended the, uh, the recent conference put on by uh, Cornerstone Magazine. Um, I was very pleased. Uh, it is not, it's not often I can say that, well, I agree with these guys, and I don't have to feel like I have to 
defend the view or something. I, I thought that everybody was pretty well right on it. And that is that, uh, in short, this uh, disease we're going through now is not a specific curse or a wrath of God or a judgment upon the whole earth. Uh, it, is, it dates back to the fall of Adam. When Adam sinned, um, part of the curse was sickness and disease and death. And so what we're suffering now is not, not something new. It's something that uh, the argument that you see is that, well, how? Uh, look how many people are dying from the flu. Look how many people die from other things. The fact is death is upon us because of Adam's sin. Um, so it's not the wrath of God. And nor do we really understand or could we even appreciate what the wrath of God is. But the book of Nahum gives us some idea. When, when it's the wrath of God, you'll know it. And it won't be people coughing and hacking. It will be uh, an event that, uh, that's far beyond this. So let me put the book into history for you. Uh, people don't preach from the minor prophets very much because um, uh, it uh, takes a little work to dig out where it is in history and so forth. And, um, and they're minor only because they're small, not because of their importance. Um, we begin that this is a, an oracle about Nineveh. So where do we know Nineveh from? Let's start from the very beginning. It's in Genesis chapter 10. You don't need to turn there. Genesis 10, 11, we find uh, the first mention of Nineveh as being a city that was built by Nimrod, the hunter. Um, and it, it's named Nineveh in part because uh, the first part of the name happens to be one of the fertility gods. Um, the secular archaeologists put the beginning of Nineveh back before the days of, uh, of Abraham. Um, at least back as far as 3,000. And we put Abraham, you know, somewhere like, uh, I don't know, 2,500, something like that. So Nineveh, an ancient, ancient city. Um, by comparison, there are no cities in, in our country that are more than a few hundred years old. St. Augustine is our, quote, oldest city right here in Florida. And we're talking about a city that only dates to, what, the 1600s when it was settled by the Spaniards. Um, yet, uh, the rest of you look at, uh, you know, I grew up in Florida, and I belong to a Facebook group that, uh, that shows pictures of how things grew when I was growing up. It was mostly, uh, just as, as a child, mostly uh, dirt roads. We didn't have paved roads, most of our city. And this is true all over Florida, old pictures of, of, uh, of our state. Um, pictures of, of New York just 100 years ago, unbelievable. So we're a very young country. But Paris, been around for centuries. Um, in, in England, cities there, been around for centuries. Imagine uh, a city that's been around for a couple of thousand years, and um, it has been the, the capital at times, the capital of, of the Assyrian nation. Uh, it is the seat of learning, massive libraries. 
you've heard of the hanging uh the hanging gardens of babylon and while uh there's always been the thought that this was in uh, uh babylonia on the euphrates but more recent archaeology they're arguing that maybe uh either a that was at nineveh or b there were two of them because there's certainly some description of Nineveh that includes what sounds just like the Hanging Gardens. They had running water. The running water was to provide uh, not only drinking water, but to uh, they had parks and they had trees inside of the city. Uh, this was not uh, this was not Eustis, okay? It was not Leesburg. It was not the tri-county area. This city, according to Jonah, it was a three-day walk across it. I've always thought of uh, a day's walk as being 12 to 15 miles. Uh, but the archaeologists say actually uh, 60 miles across. A city 60 miles across. That is pretty much from Tampa to Claremont. Uh, you who are in Claremont and my family here in Tampa, we'd be in one city. This was a huge, huge city um, filled with, with, uh, with, with entertainment, with everything you could imagine. Um, how many people lived in this city? Well, according to Jonah again, um, the Lord said himself, that there were 120,000, 120,000 what? 120,000 who don't know their left hand from their right. In other words, children. 120,000 children. Remember when the Lord judged Israel in, 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 the, in the desert, uh, the ones who are 21 and above uh, were not to see the land. And it was the children, their children, who would uh, go into the land. So if there's 120,000 children, we're talking about, you know, a city with, with millions, perhaps. It's 60 miles across, it's a big city. So this city has uh, uh, grown through the centuries and um, uh, Sennacherib, who, Sennacherib lived at the time of Isaiah the prophet. He is one of the ones who is responsible for beating up the northern kingdom, that is Israel as opposed to Judah. And in um, uh, 722, they captured um, uh, um, the northern kingdom, and in, in, in as such, it was renamed Samaria, uh, no longer was called uh, Israel. So he moved his palace to Nineveh because he wanted a palace greater than his dad's. So he stole all this good stuff from his dad's palace and he moved it to Nineveh and made Nineveh the capital of Assyria. In doing all of this, uh, they pretty well ticked off everybody. They had conquered the peoples that we will know later who would come and conquer uh, the southern kingdom, that is Judah. That would be the Medes and the Persians, uh, the Babylonians. Uh, so we have the Assyrians, the Medes, the Persians, and the Babylonians. The Assyrians were the fiercest of warriors. Um, 
uh, pictures that we have in stone will show you that when the Assyrians conquered a people, they would uh, take the heads of, of their captives, particularly important people, and they would and they would make uh, you know a stake and stake these heads all the way down the road and walk other captives through it. So they would they used a lot of scare tactics, which were of course pretty scary. And uh, they are considered in the ancient world to be absolutely the fiercest, meanest, vilest people of, of all. Um, they seldom took a whole lot of captives. They only took people that, that were of some use to them. They, they just wiped people out. So that's Nineveh. Uh, what is the problem with Nineveh and why is Nineveh to be destroyed? Um, when you look at the judgment that came upon the land that Israel was going to conquer, it said that the, the fullness of their iniquity had come. And so God was righteous in judging them and taking their land and gifting it to Israel. Um, but is that why God judged Nahum? I mean, uh, Nineveh. And the answer is, well, not, not exactly. Uh, to understand that, I'm going to take you back to Genesis again. I'd love to take you to Deuteronomy, but I'm just not going to do it today. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to skip it, though it's certainly in there. Genesis chapter 12 is when God first makes a covenant with Abraham, and He says, chapter 12, verse 1 of Genesis. Now the Lord said to Abram, "Go forth from your country and from your relatives, from your father's house." To a land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in all of the families of the earth, and you shall be blessed. Well, the Abraham covenant is, is what gives promise to the Gentiles. Um, Jonah, probably the more, uh, the better known story about God and his dealings with Nineveh happens at about 760 to 740. We're going to average it 750 just for, for mathematic purposes. So somewhere around 750 uh, BC, Jonah goes and he walks one day's journey into the city and begins proclaiming the judgment that's coming upon Nineveh. Um, the um, um, word gets out to the king and they go into sackcloth and ashes and they plead for God's forgiveness and he grants them um, forgiveness. Uh, Jonah's not real happy about it, and you know the rest of the story. So that is somewhere around 750 years B.C. A hundred years later, about 650 B.C., remember the numbers go backwards, a hundred years later, um, they have forgotten all of that. This is uh, This is sad but true how... 
Um, I mean, we, we know it, it from nation to nation. We see it even within assemblies. Uh, we see it all over the world that there's periods of revival followed by periods of forgetfulness. That's what the whole book of Judges, Judges is about. God, God brings them a judge and uh, they return to the Lord. Things are good for a while. He protects them from their enemies. Then the generation dies. The next generation forgets. They fall into sin. The judgment comes and this whole Deuteronomic cycle happens over and over again, at least some seven times in the book of Judges. So these, uh, these have forgotten. Um, they, they had a chance in that the, uh, the gospel of the kingdom, if you will, was preached to them by Jonah, and yet they forgot. Uh, the Lord says in the book of Matthew that, um, that the, um, the folks who have heard the gospel and have rejected it uh, will be worse than the people of Nineveh who heard and, and believed. So here we are this hundred years later and they have, uh, they have attacked Israel during this time. And um, were it not for the intervention of the Lord, they would have also taken the Southern kingdom, Judah. Um, but God, God protected them. So where are we in biblical history from uh, remember that kings and chronicles run somewhat parallel in passages Kings starts a little early begins actually with adam um and chronicles begins pretty much with with david chronicles tends to look at more of the religious activities of the nation where kings has more of the things concerning battles and so forth so the, uh, the period of time that we're looking at right here, where, uh, where Nahum is preaching, is in 2 Kings 21 and 22. Um, I'm going to turn back there and just read a verse from there, just to give you a clue. <clears throat> so Manasseh is, uh, is the leader at the time. Um, <clears throat> He, in 21, Manasseh is 12 years old when he becomes king and he reigns 55 years. So he's a long time runner. Uh, um, in verse 9, it says, Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. So Manasseh is not considered one of the good ones at this point. And, uh, and, it, and it ends here with... Uh, we see King uh, Uzzah in 26, and Josiah comes to be uh, king in 22. So we're near actually the end of the time of, of the northern kingdom, Judah. won't be long before they will go into captivity itself. So we're at 2 Kings 21, 22. The, uh, in Chronicles, we're really near the end of Second Chronicles 33 and 34. So this is the time period in which, uh, in which Nahum is speaking to uh, uh, or about Nineveh. Um, there are 
three time periods that we see the prophets. We see them as uh, before the captivity, during the captivity, and then the post-captivity uh, prophets. Nahum is prophesying pretty much after um, the first wave against the northern kingdom Israel, but before the uh, the southern kingdom. So we're looking at a prophet who is um, pre and he is a prophet from the northern kingdom, not from the southern kingdom. So we have the prophets on the northern side, we have Isaiah, and we have Micah, who falls in in between, and Zephaniah, who preaches against Nineveh uh, as well. And from the northern kingdom, also known as Israel, we have Nahum. So that's pretty much where we are in history. Uh, the, the northern kingdom has fallen or is falling. Um, the, uh, the actual destruction date would be uh, 722, just a little bit after um, um, Jonah. And from 650, we're talking about about 70 years after um, the northern kingdom has been destroyed. So God's judgment upon Nineveh is because they dare touch his, his chosen. They touched, uh, they touched the, North, the northern kingdom. Seventy years have passed. They've, they've moved on. Um, and they think they're somewhat untouchable, uh, much like folks do today. This book, taking just a, a broad look at the book, it is uh, written in a poetic form. I just read this morning as I was looking at some of the archaeological things and getting my, my timeline uh, straight in my own mind. I read some stuff from a secular author who said that, uh, that these prophets wrote years after all this happened and, um, and that they were basically rewriting history. Uh, there's, uh, that, of course, is, is a liberal and unbelieving view of the prophets of God. Um, there are internal evidences, pieces, uh, references to, um, to things within the book, internal, internal and external um, reasons to believe that the book was written when Nahum says it was written. Um, but the structure of the book is Poetic. It's a type of poem called a chiasm, which uh, has, if you were to put it in a in a format like a like an an X or actually two V's, and you're looking at um, A and a D and a C. Uh, that's A one A A one B B one C C one. It's, it's a structure that's well-known, found in several of the Psalms, found in a couple of the other books like this. So you have a book that's written poetically uh, and has a structure. It's hard to argue that multiple people were involved in it, um, that 
it is indeed the work of, of one person who put together uh, what we are reading today. And he begins with a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The point is that they are suffering the wrath of God uh, because of what they, how they treated Israel. Certainly, they were a sinful people. That's that's not to be argued. They were a wicked and and uh, a wild group, but that is not the argument. The fact is, it's how they it's how they treated God's people, and that's what brings the wrath of God upon them. Um, why is this important? Well, one thing is important is because every time that God tells us in advance that something is going to happen, as Scripture says, I told you beforehand so that when it happens, you will know that what I told you is the truth. So God tells them beforehand what is going to happen. Uh, um, it's not the first time. Remember, Noah preached for 120 years, and um, no one got into the ark except his own family. But God sent Jonah, and there was repentance. And now God sends word through Nahum, whose name means consolation. And yet this all seems to be um, not very consoling, at least not to uh, at least not to, to Nineveh. We're going to see as you look through the book, the Assyrian king is taunted by Nahum, and each time the the king is taunted, it's followed by a celebration by Judah. Judah doesn't have a lot of reason to celebrate right now. Uh, King Manasseh, the only reason that they're having any level of peace is because he is paying off the Assyrians. And so as long as he pays them a tribute, they've been leaving him alone and they have relative peace. But nonetheless, uh, they're, they're still, um, Israel is to be the head and not the tail. Israel uh, is not to be under Gentile rule. And so God brings forth his judgment. Begins in verse 2 and 3 with four words for anger. He's the avenging, the wrathful. Um, he reserves wrath for his adversaries. The people of God do not ever suffer the wrath of God. The people of God endure the, um, the correction of the Lord but not his wrath. His wrath is reserved for those who are unbelieving and who have rejected him, and particularly those who, uh, how they've treated his people. If asked about a verse from Nahum, the one that is probably quoted the most and maybe the only verse in the, in the entire book that people know, and that's, Verse 15 of chapter 1. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. That's part of that celebration. We celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows. For never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. So God is promising uh, that he is going to avenge um, uh, Israel judah of those who have come against them now there are three types of judgments here 
Um, you may recall that in the time of, um, of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, fire rained from heaven. There's fire and brimstone, right? Uh, there's a time in the future where the earth will be burned. So fire is one of the judgments of God. In the time of, of Noah, water was the judgment of God. And God washed everything away. And so we have water. The third type of judgment from God is uh, judgment by, uh, by battle. And that is where the enemies of Israel would conquer them. Um, and um, <clears throat> they, would, they would lose in battle. Of course, there's some other pieces too, including fear, but we're not going to make it more complicated than just these three things. And these three are all found here. So let's look at, uh, let's look at these three judgments. Verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But look at verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. Look at chapter 2 and verse 6. It says, The gates of the rivers are open, and the palace is dissolved. This actually happened. Uh, Nineveh, for having been a, an important city, a capital city, a well-known city, well-documented city, was lost until 1847. So from um, 612, when this city was destroyed, that's uh, 2,400 years, it lay waste and could not be identified. There were small settlements in the area, but they didn't even know they were on top of the old city of Nineveh. Uh, archaeologists found it in 1842 and worked on, uh, on trying to map out this massive, massive, massive city uh, to which they, uh, modern uh, Mosul is, is on top of it now. And it's uh, there. Uh, they find an artifact every time they dig a, dig a ditch. That's pretty much how that works. But uh, the floods did come, and it washed the foundations away, washed the bricks away. You know, the Tigris overflowed, and I don't, I wouldn't call it a hundred-year flood. It was a flood to beat all floods, uh, because it literally washed uh, the walls down and so forth. It's sort of like uh, when the rains came down and the floods came up. And the house on the sand went splat. Well, it went splat. Uh, water was one of the great judgments. While they were under siege, we also have the uh, the armies that are against them. Um, the king, not wanting to uh, give them anything when they got there, uh, deliberately burned the city. So look at chapter uh, 3. Verse 1, woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage, her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, that would be chariots. 
galloping horses, bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot. The charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. And then God continues his judgment. Verse 5, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirt over your face, show your nakedness to the nations. The kingdom's your disgrace. I'll throw filth on you, make you vile, and set you up as a spectacle. And they will come about, and all that see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I see comforters for you? Now the um, the secular archaeologists and stuff uh, take issue with this. They said that this was, you know, of course, cities grieved for uh, for the past in Nineveh. It was such a wonderful, uh, beautiful city with all of this um, commerce, entertainment. Uh, education, everything. But I think that, uh, I think Nahum had it right because uh, all of these nations did not pay tribute without without having had uh, the Assyrian armies come and invade their nations. That's why the, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the three of them got together and wiped the city out. Uh, so no, I think uh, I think Nahum is correct. Nobody nobody will grieve for her, at least not those three, and not Israel. Nobody was grieving that they were lost. So in chapter three, we we have uh, because of their cruelty, and because of their cruelty in war, God uses the cruelty of war against them and comes and destroys their capital, their city, and their king. So we have the judgment by water and the judgment by war or battle and defeat. Um, and then uh, and then finally we have the judgment by fire. Chapter three, verse 13. It says, behold, your people are women in your midst. In other words, they don't have any men to fight their battles. The gates of your land are open wide, your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Draw yourself water for the siege. And remember, they had running water in the city, but now water is an issue. Strengthen your fortification. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. Verse 15, the fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as a locust does. That means there's nothing left after the locust has passed. And so we have the judgment by fire. The story is that when the nations attacked them, the king uh, burned everything of value. He burned the palaces. He burned everything so that the invaders would get nothing, uh, nothing except for for their victory. Um, And because of that, uh, uh, it was never settled again. It was uh, the walls came down. Uh, the flood came and washed everything over, and the sands of time covered it till it was just nothing for over 2,000 years. They didn't even know it was there anymore. This is the complete ruin that is seen, the laying waste, the destruction. That's the wrath of God. 
So in case you're wondering if a virus is the wrath of God, then you really don't have a clue. This is wrath here. But this wrath is, is not based just on God's, God's anger for them, but it's his love for Israel, his protection of his people. Um, we sing that song, The Lord's Supper, with mercy and with judgment, my web of time he wove. Mercy and judgment, grace and mercy, tempered with the judgment of God upon uh, all that are unbelieving. The, uh, it's in Peter that we read, they are concerned uh, that when is the promise of his coming? Nothing's changed since the beginning of time. But in fact, uh, his promises are yea and amen. He is coming as he promised. So let me give you a, a quick overview of the structure of the book. Um, and um i hope that it's not too many i can't see many faces so i don't know except kitty's face so um it's it's in the form of a poem and the first part of the poem is is the judgment with the key being that the lord is good many times people will say that the god of the old testament was a god of judgment and a god of wrath and the god of the new testament is i love everybody this is jesus but God has always been a God of love. He loves his people and he loves those who, who place their faith in him. And in the New Testament, God is still a God of judgment because we find in Revelation that uh, the judgment will indeed come. So in our first section here, uh, we'll call it section A, we have the, uh, um, the judgment of God upon Nineveh and, and his reason is because of, of how they've treated um, his people. Verse 12, we, say, we see, thus saith the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. Let me pause and just explain that, unpack it just a little bit. Every time that God has used another nation to judge his people, every time, he comes back to the nation that is used to judge his people, and judgment falls back upon them because they dare touch his elect. They dare to touch his elect. And uh, so they who, who had afflicted, uh, he did this with G Egypt, and he did this with other nations, the Philistines says, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. He's talking to Judah and their affliction from Assyria was their affliction from God. Verse 13, so now I will break his yoke bar from upon you and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I'll cut off the idol and the image. Now he switched over to uh, um, to Nineveh. Um, I will prepare your grave for your contemptible. 
Then 15, we switch over to the celebration of Israel. Uh, the promise is that uh, their shackles are going to be removed in verse 13. And in verse 14, uh, their enemies are going to be cut off, their idols, their images, the houses of their gods. So verse 15, they're excited and they celebrate. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you, for he is cut off completely. Then the one who scatters has come up against you, the man, man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your backs, summon your strength. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. And even though the devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine presses. <clears throat> so we have, uh, we have uh, the nation destroyed, the nation of, uh, of Syria, as in Nineveh destroyed. And then we have uh, Judah, uh, who is brought back again. And that is the, the great promise. Of all the, the prophets, is that uh, that there's still a future for Israel, and we believe that. The next section is a call to alarm. Um, <clears throat> that's where we have the uh, uh, you know, the battle. The shields of his mighty men are colored red in verse three. The chariots <clears throat> racing madly through the streets in verse four. Uh, <clears throat> <clears throat> And the rivers are opened up in verse 6, and the palaces dissolved. There are uh, four descriptions of Nineveh's fall. There's 3 through 7, which is the, um, um, which is the battle and the rivers. 8 through 13 is the second one, where it says Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days. Remember, this is desert country, a pool of water in the deserts, big thing. Uh, so, but now they're fleeing. Nobody turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. They've left without, you know, they've left without their treasure. They're, they've kept their life and not their treasure. And then again, the taunt. Where is the den of lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where are the lion lionesses and lion club prowl? There's nothing to disturb them. So we're the taunt against, one more time, against Nineveh. And then verse 13, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I'll burn up your chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of the messengers be heard. Chapter 3 is the woe oracle. Um, you find this in some of the other prophetic writings as well, the woes. Woe to that bloody city. So they're uh, first because it's uh, woe to them because of their cruelty against um, man. God gives them cruelty against themselves. Verses five through seven, he again repeats itself. Woe, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And then in, in uh, 8 through 19, we have uh, another taunt, but it begins with, are you better than Noaman? 
this uh, you have to do a fair amount of reading to um, to know what you're looking for here because um, some particularly secular archaeologists will argue that uh, that somehow they got it wrong here in Nahum. Uh, this is one of the things that dates Nahum the way it does. You say, well, uh, Nahum was written after all this happened, years later, hundreds of years later. Is that true? The answer is, in verse 8, he asked them, are you better than no Amon? Um, another way of written that would have been Amon, no. This um, is modern day or Thebes, which was destroyed not once, but twice. And uh, the other spelling is Amun, A-M-U-N, which is after the god or goddesses uh, of the great, uh, their great, um, um, what do you call that thing? Their, their place of worship there, the temple. The temple of Amon. But the term Noamon was not discovered uh, in use until recent archaeology. And it was what it was called way back. It's not a newer name. The newer name is Amon, A M U N. Uh, Ammon, Amon, there's like three different spellings. But the term Noamon or Amon No dates back to. Well, you guessed it, <laughs> dates back in, to the 600s BC. It dates back to the time of Nahum. So this one term in verse eight is part of the internal evidence that the book dates back to when we say it dates back to before the fall. So are you no better than them? Noamon would begin Thebes, which is situated on the waters of the Nile. Surrounded by water, the rampart was the sea. They had a wall of the sea. Uh, Ethiopia was her might. Egypt was her might. It was the, uh, there were two capitals in Egypt. There was the, um, call it the secular capital, where, where Pharaoh lived. Um, and then there was a religious capital, which was Thebes. And so they, they both were somewhat capital cities. It was also, like Nineveh, uh, a beautiful city with beautiful um, um, architecture. There was a, a, uh, an earthquake that destroyed some of the buildings, and those were all rebuilt again. And then, then there was the destruction here uh, by their enemies, followed by a destruction again in, during the time of Rome. So are you better than them? They were, they, they were a, de, a defended city, defended by being surrounded by water. Because in those days, they didn't have the, the Navy with their, with their big bombs and so forth. They're surrounded with water on one side. And, and uh, what's the result? Verse 10, she became an exile. She went into captivity. And their people were dashed to pieces. So God, uh, God declares that uh, they're not any better. You know, uh, uh, everybody thinks that it can't happen to us. It can only happen to them. Um, 
but the fact is, uh, <laughs> Nineveh, I mean, you live in this, this beautiful city. The, well, it is the finest city probably in the world at the time. They, how could they believe it, that their city was going to come to ruin? He says, no, you wouldn't be the first and you won't be the last. And then the, the final alarm is um, in verses 14 to 17, where he calls for them to draw upon water for the siege. Uh, what would happen is um, when uh, nations would go up against you, they would uh, <clears throat> build, build sand up along your walls until they could just come right over the top of them. But the first thing they do is cut your water supply off. So you can't get any water, you can't get any food, you can't get anything in and out of the city. So they starve you, they, they dehydrate you, and then uh, eventually come in and take over. So he's saying, you know, prepare for the seeds, get water. Um, And then uh, we come to the end of the, uh, of, the, of the last chapter, and he says, uh, your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Syria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and there's no one to gather them. There's no relief. Your breakdown, your wound is incurable. So God has declared to them that, uh, uh, that there, will be no, there will be no relief, there will be no forgiveness. And then Israel responds with all who hear about you will clap their hands over you for whom for whom has not your evil passed continually. And so there is the, uh, the celebration uh, that God has judged Israelites to celebrate the judgment of God except when it's on them. And so that is, uh, in a nutshell, um, the book of Nahum in Zephaniah 2.13, Zephaniah also proclaims that there will be uh, a defeat, not just a defeat, but, a, but that Nineveh will become a desolation. Uh, it is placed here as a reminder to us um, uh, that God's judgment is indeed, um, when God said, we, we love to know that, that whosoever believes the Lord shall be saved. We, that part of the gospel is good. But the soul that sins, it shall die, is also part of the story. That, um, that the ones who don't believe will be cast into the lake of fire. Um, there, are, there are people, uh, apparently every generation or so, somebody will, will flip sides. I'm not going to name names, but there was a, a very famous author and teacher who uh, could not deal with the fact that uh, that um, that people would suffer forever in, in torment and so he went with and um, wrote that uh, that wasn't really going to happen it was going to be annihilation that you know it's just no more consciousness annihilation for for the unbelievers uh, trying to resolve uh, this harsh judgment of God upon those who don't believe. Um, and some of those who've gone back and forth, you know, apparently they can't decide. But the fact is, we have a loving God and we 
and a God who uh, who loves Israel. And there's a future for Israel. He also is a, uh, a righteous God. And he will consume those who do not believe, the nations who don't believe, they'll be consumed in his wrath. And that is yet to come. This was only a very limited sample of what's yet to come. This is the judgment on one city. We're told that in the future that the uh, that the entire world will be destroyed by fire. Great judgment is indeed coming. And so, uh, uh, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men and we share with them the gospel that they they do not need to fear God, uh, though they should. But they will come to faith in um, the one who has given himself for them, then they can escape the judgment and the wrath that's yet to come. And so that is our, our message to those. Uh, it's a short book, a good read. Read it over a couple of times. And uh, I hope that uh, that it'll make a more, more sense to you and where it is in time, where it is in history, uh, and who the major players are and who the major characters are that uh, during this time. Um, two things I'd like to end with, and that is, uh, our Lord is jealous and avenging. Verse two. Verse seven, the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he know the, knows those who take refuge in him. We, through our faith in Christ, have taken refuge in him, and he is our stronghold. And yes, we are in a day of trouble, not like this, but we're still in the day of trouble, and he is our stronghold. <clears throat> and God is good. He is good indeed all the time. Father, we thank you for your love and for your grace, for your goodness to us, for your strength in time of need. Lord, we hear for those unbelieving who will face your judgment and your wrath, which is yet to come. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, strengthen our faith and our resolve that uh, perhaps we would be like Jonah and walk through the city and proclaim that the day of the Lord is coming. Uh, give us that kind of, of uh, godly strength. Part us with thy blessing and use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.